Have you ever been given a second chance? Have you ever messed up something really badly and then been told, don't worry, it's all right, we'll start all over again? I can remember a particular interview that I had. It was the worst interview that I'd ever had. I answered, I answered pretty much every question badly. And I walked outside the interview room and I just thought, that was not me. And I was just wishing I could have had a second chance. But there was no knocking on the door and asking for an interview. It was all over. If anyone needed a second chance, it was Saul here as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel. Last week, you might remember, we were introduced to Saul as the first king of Israel and things did not start off well at all. He was the first king, but you might remember last week, he seemed more interested in donkeys than in the kingdom of God. When God's spirit came upon him, he didn't fight the Philistines like we were uh, expecting. And then when Samuel announced him as king, what was he doing? He was down hiding behind the baggage. The whole chapter was a bit of a fizzer. Well, today, Saul is given a second chance, a fresh start. Things go much better. You might have picked that up in the reading. Saul's not the only one, though, who is given a fresh start. As we read on into chapter 12, the entire nation of Israel is given a fresh start. And it turns out that God loves giving people a fresh start. He loves giving people a second chance. And so we're going to pop out at the other end and see the kind of fresh start that God offers to you and I. And in fact, it's a fresh start that's even better than the one that's going on here. But firstly, let's look at Saul in chapter 11 here. You might have noticed, as it was read, it starts with a military threat to God's people in verse 1 there of chapter 11. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all of Israel. Now, Jabesh Gilead is miles and miles away from where the, all the action has been so far. We've been sort of down the south of the nation of Israel. This is way, way up on the top far edge. Last week we were thinking about the Philistines being the threat. This time it's the Ammonites. It's a completely different nation. It's a long way away. It sounds pretty rough though, doesn't it? Nahash, their king, wants to gouge out everyone's right eye and turn them into slaves. Up there in Jabesh Gilead, they're outnumbered. And so they, they ask the rest of Israel for help. They send out a plea for help. When Saul finds out about it, because he's way down in the south, look at what happens. He decides to get things moving. Verse 6. When Saul heard their words... The Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people. Now, you remember last week when the Spirit of God came upon Saul, he didn't do anything at all. 
This time he's straight into action. He gathers the nation of Israel together and they go into battle. Some weird stuff there about sending oxen through the post. Um, You might want to compare that with the end of Judges to see what's happening there. But under the power of God, Saul, the donkey farmer, becomes what seems to be a great military leader. It is a massive victory. He splits his um, army up into three and so on. What's the difference between this and last week, which was so disappointing? The only difference seems to be, as we're reading it, is that last week God gave Saul a choice. Last week God said, do whatever your hand finds for you to do. And Saul Saul did nothing. This time it seems that God's spirit is taking control of Saul and somehow controlling him. In fact, in verse 13, Saul gives all the credit to God. Verse 13. Did you notice that as it was read? Verse 13. But Saul said, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. This is a massive turnaround. Last week, Saul wouldn't even own up to talking to Samuel about God. Now he's giving all the credit to God. In fact, it's such a big turnaround that God wants to start all over again. He wants to make Saul king all over again. Verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there reaffirm the kingship. That word there, reaffirm, it is most often translated in the Old Testament to repair or to restore. It's the word when God says, I will restore the ruins of Israel, that kind of thing. I will rebuild the fallen altar. It's like when you take a car to the smash repairer and they fix it up back to what it should be, back to new condition. In other words, this whole kingship thing, this whole kingship business, it got off to a bad start. Let's put all that behind us, the donkeys, the Philistines hiding in the baggage. Let's forget it all happened and start again. And that's what they do. They make make Saul king all over again. This time, though, God is included. Do you remember the first time they wanted to reject God as their king and make Saul king? This time, look at how it's worded, verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal. If you want to wonder about the significance of Gilgal, go and look in the book of Judges why Gilgal is called Gilgal and think about um, Nahash wanting to bring disgrace. a really interesting thing to follow up. I'll leave that for you. All the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Notice there, they confirmed king, Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. That's what was missing last week. They sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. That's what was missing in the last chapter. It's a fresh start. What Saul does with this fresh start, we're going to find out over the next two weeks. It's pretty disappointing, actually. But for now, let's just keep reading into chapter 12, because in chapter 12, things continue to go well, because we see that this is not just a fresh start for Saul. This is a fresh start for the entire nation of Israel. 
See, the problem last week and the week before, it wasn't just a problem with Saul, was it? Saul wasn't the only rotten egg in the basket. The entire nation of Israel had abandoned God. The only reason they asked for Saul to be their king is because they didn't want God as their king. Now God gives the entire nation of Israel a second chance. Although it's not really a second chance, is it, if we've been reading, it's a third chance, or, no, it's not, it's a... Actually, it's pretty hard to count up how many chances that God has given them. But it's another chance. Chapter 12, we get this massive speech through the prophet Samuel where God is begging them and warning them to get it right this time. It starts in the first half of the chapter there, if you just skim your eyes over it, where Samuel reminds the nation of Israel of all the good things that God has done for them in the past. And it is a massive list. In verse 6, he reminds them about how God rescued them out of slavery so long ago. Then he reminds them in verse 8 about how God gave them the very land that they're now living in. Verse 11, he reminds them of how so many times God has rescued them from their enemies on every side through the book of Judges. The point is, though, God has only ever done What is good for them? He loves them. He's rescued them. He blesses them. And yet, despite all that, they just keep rejecting him as king. And they've done it again. And so the punchline comes down in verse 14, where God gives them another chance. Have a look at verse 14 with me. If... You fear the Lord and serve him and obey him and to not rebel against his commands if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your father's. It is a fresh start for Israel. He wants them to get it right this time. And to give them a wake-up call, to make them see how serious this is, he sends lightning and thunder in verse 18. 18. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. It couldn't be any clearer. God is spelling it out in black and white what he's done for them. He's warning them of the consequences of abandoning him. He sends thunder and rain to show that he means business. And they seem to get it. This is the first time that Israel admit that they have done wrong in asking for a king. Verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. So they confess their sin. Even though the nation of Israel get it, God warns them again in verse 20. Samuel says they need to serve the Lord with all their heart. And then once more for the dummies in verse 24. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. God has now said it three times. 
It could not be any clearer. He wants them to obey him with all their hearts. And I don't know about you, but I'm not feeling too confident at this point. In fact, it's feeling a bit like deja vu. It feels like we've been here before. We have been here before. So despite all these warnings, despite the thunder and the rain, how far do you think we're going to have to read on before something goes wrong? How far do you think we have to go and read on in 1 Samuel before Saul, the king, or the people of Israel turn their hearts against God again? About eight verses. Less than seven days. They can't even last one week. This is a problem. God has to do something about this. If God wants his people to obey him, and it seems that he genuinely does want his people to obey him, he's going to have to fix this problem from the inside out. I can remember when one of our boys was about one year old, he had really bad eczema. Okay? If you're a parent, you might know what that is. It's this skin rash that's sort of behind your legs and your, on your arms, and it was on his tummy and face. So we went to the doctor and we tried all kinds of things. Nothing seemed to get rid of it. We tried changing the, ba- the brand of baby soap and shampoo. That didn't help. We tried different creams. That didn't help. We tried giving him different clothes to wear. That didn't help. We tried this special steroid cream that came from the doctor. Didn't really help either. Eventually, we ended up at the allergy clinic at the RPA hospital and we found out that the cause of it all was the food that he was eating. We changed his diet and the rash completely cleared up. See, the problem was on the inside, but we were trying to fix it on the outside. It's the same here with God's people. Their problem is on the inside. God needs to fix their hearts. And that's exactly what he does. Not in the book of 1 Samuel, though. 1 Samuel is going to have a lot of disappointments. We need to read on past the book of 1 Samuel, past 1 and 2 Kings. In fact, we need to read on 500 years later, 500 years after 1 Samuel, and look at some promises that God makes to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. God says to the nation of Israel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, so your hard heart, your heart that won't obey me, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a heart that will obey me. See, I will put my spirit in you and move you. I will cause you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's more than just a second chance. God's going to fix the problem. God's going to give his people a new heart. And 500 years after that promise to Ezekiel, it came true. Straight after the death and resurrection of Jesus, on the day of Pentecost, you can read about it in Acts chapter 2, God poured out his spirit on his people to change them from the inside out. 
And that's where it gets really exciting for you and I because we live in the time when that promise has been fulfilled. If you turn your life over to Jesus, God promises that he has given you his Holy Spirit. See, what do you think is the big difference between us today here in Dubbo and God's people back there in 1 Samuel? Is it that somehow we're better than them? You know, we're better educated society, we've got better science or something like that? Of course not. Ephesians 2 says it's nothing to do with us, the difference. Is it that we've been forgiven through Jesus? Well, sure, we have a lot of better understanding than they did, but that's not the main difference because God's people in the Old Testament were forgiven. Is it that we have Jesus as our king? Well, that's great, but that's not the main difference either because they had God as their king. So what is the big difference between us today and the people that we're reading about in 1 Samuel? The big difference is that the nation of Israel did not have the Spirit of God. But God has given us his Spirit. So we don't just get a fresh start, we get a completely new life. God changes our hearts. Do you realise how remarkable that is? Don't take it for granted. As a Christian... As a Christian, even though you struggle, even though you have different desires within you competing, in your heart, you actually want to obey God. And that is the work of God's spirit in you. I don't know about you, but often when I'm tempted, I can think, I want that, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever that pleasure is or whatever that temptation is, I tend to think that's what I want And I feel like God's against me, you know. I want it, but God doesn't want me to have it. It's kind of like Adam in the garden or Eve. It looks so good, but God doesn't want me to have it. He's holding back on me. It looks like it's God against me. But that's not the case at all with us, with the Spirit of God. In fact, that is Satan's greatest trick, to deceive us into thinking that's what we want. But that's a lie. Because that's not what we want anymore. We have a new heart. I don't want to sin. That is not what I want. I want to please God. And when I do sin, I'm disappointed. Satan is my enemy, not God. God wants me to do what I want to do, which he has placed on my heart, which is to obey him. See, when you became a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit changed you so that you want to please God, even though at times you fail. Do you see that? Whatever the sin is that you might be battling in or sins in your life, look beyond the temptation and see that God has placed in your heart something far deeper. You actually want to obey him. Don't say yes to those desires that are part of your old self, whatever they are, whether it's greed or pornography or gossip or selfishness or laziness or overwork, whatever it is, that's not who you are anymore. 
You're a child of God. You've got his spirit in your heart. Keep in step with his spirit. So when marriage is hard, when you feel like giving up, if you're married and part of you wants to retreat back into the safety of not engaging anymore because it's just too painful to try and fix things up, if you're tempted to think, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore, look deeper. See what you really want. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, what you really want, what you really want is to obey God. Which probably means re-engaging and loving your husband or wife. And if that's what you really want, to obey God, that's the spirit of God at work. Or when the things that you love most are ripped away and you're left feeling empty or confused or lonely and you're praying for healing and you're begging for God's strength to get you through it and they're great things to pray for. But then somewhere in there, your prayer changes And you discover this deeper prayer where you just say, God, whatever is happening in my life, I just want to know you more. I just want you to do what is best. If that's the prayer you're praying, that's the spirit of God at work. He's changed your heart. That's your new heart praying. Or when you want to talk to your friends about Jesus and You know, you're just worried about what they all think about you. Or you start thinking about what it's going to do to the friendship. And you're not even sure how to raise it or what to say. Or if you'll come across as a fraud. Then you look deeper and you see that your deepest desire is actually that you want them to become a follower of Jesus. And somehow... That is more important than what they think of you. That's the spirit of God at work. That's your new heart. Under all those selfish desires and struggle, you have a new heart. Or if following Jesus has become dry and you're not reading your Bible anymore and it all just seems a bit of a chore... And you're not even, you're starting to doubt if it's even true, and it would be easier just to ignore it all. And yet, there's some part of your heart that isn't ready to give up because you actually want to know God. You want a deeper relationship with God. That's the Spirit of God at work. Or what about when you fail and you do sin? And you feel guilty. And you confess it. And you ask for a fresh start. But still you feel guilty. And you think, God couldn't love me. I'm a failure. But there's some, some voice that says, you're God's child. You're forgiven. You've been washed clean. You're going to be pure and blameless and with him in that new creation if you stick with Jesus. That's the spirit of God at work.
Can you see that in all those situations, the Spirit of God is working for your good to help you obey your Father? So when you feel like there's nothing left, when there's nothing left in your tank, and yet there's some part of you wanting to please God, that's his spirit. When you find yourself doing something that, in all honesty, you could not do in your own strength, you would have given up long ago, that's God's spirit. And that's the big difference between us and Israel. They couldn't obey God. Because they didn't have his spirit. We have new hearts. We want to obey him. It's exactly what we're thinking about in 1 John. We're God's children now. We've been given his spirit. We want to obey him. Let's pray. Father God, it can be disappointing reading about the nation of Israel and their continued rejection of you. And yet we see in them a bit of a mirror of what we're like. Because we, we're, we've got, we're full of disappointments in our own life where we disappoint ourselves. And we know that we disappoint you. Father, thank you that you have given us a fresh start. A second chance. Thank you that you have, through the death of Jesus and his resurrection, brought us forgiveness. That everything we have done and will do wrong has been washed away through Jesus. Thank you that we have been washed clean when we come to him. Thank you that even those sins in our past that we remember, thank you that you don't remember them. Thank you that through Jesus there is complete forgiveness. But Father God, thank you that there's more than that. Thank you that there is real change. We're not perfect. We still sin. But thank you that you have given us a new heart that wants to obey you. And thank you that your Holy Spirit slowly but surely is changing us to make us more like Jesus. Father, please help us to keep in step with your spirit. Please help us to see those desires and attitudes and actions in our life that are coming from your word and that your spirit is bringing about and please help us to keep in step with that. Please help us to say no to the desires of the flesh which are no longer part of who we are. And please help us to live out of our new hearts for your glory. Amen.